What advice do you have for young filmmakers out there, either looking for a producer's rep, going into distribution, or circulating through that festival circuit? You know, I think that the most important thing is that the materials that you show people, I mean, in the end, when you get a distributor, they might change your trailer, they might change your poster, but I think it's like really knowing, you know, what your audience is, believing in your in what you're doing, that's going to make a difference. I mean, because if I'm somebody that's going to make a decision, what I mean, you know, like if like if my company, if Alyssa and I get, you know, three people come at us and, you know, one has a really good documentary, but they're not motivated and they feel like they, you know, know all the answers, then, you know, we're probably not going to do it because, you know, you don't know once you get into the marketplace, you know, how it's going to end up and who's going to pass, you know, what, you know, what's going on those different days. So I think the most advice is to be really open-minded, realize that, you know, you have, you have control and you have power in that if you, you know, if you build your, you know, you're following your audience, it's very hard for people to say no to that. Well, that's what I think these young filmmakers uh, forget is, you know, you have to put yourself out there in order to get the best out of the film festival. And if you don't show up and and if you don't network and if you don't put yourself out there, then no one will know that you're there now. You know, post-COVID, a lot of the film festivals are virtual and a lot of the film festivals are going to stay virtual for uh, 2020 that we are in now. Um, So, or actually 2021 uh, going into this current year. So when they do that, it doesn't mean that they can't still propel that film forward. They can send links out to distribution companies, to acquisition companies saying, my film is showing at this festival virtually, and here's a link to see it. So they they can still proactively take control of their career. So I'm going to ask you one last question, which is, tell us a dirty little Hollywood secret (laughs) <laughs> for all those young filmmakers listening in that you wish somebody had told you when you were, you know, starting out? I mean, I think that, you know, probably, you know, two things. One is that you have a goal and you can reach it, but you have to just really mm-hmm. be prepared, you know, for the ups and downs that might come in between and don't view them as, you know, hindrances or signs that it's not meant to be, but that there are signs on how to better prepare yourself for once you get there. I think it's just really important to keep, you know, your vision and to, you know, don't, you know, don't put, you know, restrictions on yourself. Like when you get that in your head, you know, somehow you've got to transform that where you don't feel like, oh, I'll never get a showrunner. You know, if you keep saying that, then you won't. What is your advice for a for those filmmakers, those new filmmakers out there, those new writers out there, what's a solid piece of advice you can give to those writers listening in? Work on your craft, make as many connections as you have, help everyone you can, because that's how this business works. It's all, it's the circle of favors. Mm -hmm. And we're not helping people to get the favor back. We're helping people to put the energy out there in the universe and it will come back, just not from where you expect. Uh, stay in touch with people. Mm-hmm. Don't let more than a year go by since you talked to that person. Um, be nice to the secretary. 
because they are in charge of everything. Or the Seriously. assistant. Or the assistant. Yeah, exactly. Be nice to whoever's answering the phone. They are in charge. And they may um, be doing your job in the future. Oh, in five minutes. <laughs> I, I, I went through a period of 10 years where I sold everything to Universal. Because when I was answering phones at William Morris, the guy answering phones for the, the producer that my boss was covering, um, uh, he and I got to, we talked every day, all day. So we right. got to be friends. And then he became president of production at Universal. And I moved up to be an agent. And I sold everything to Universal. Because Casey would take my call. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. A, that's a little tidbit that a lot of people don't understand. They're rude to that assistant. They're rude to that secretary. And those guys are the ones that they're sitting in that seat for a reason. They're not sitting in that seat to be a lifetime assistant. They're not sitting in that seat right. to be a lifetime, you know, uh, um, secretary. They're, they're, they're trying to move up themselves. Yeah. yeah. And what happens is like my assistant came into my office once and said, there's a really loud, nasty jerk on the phone. Do you want to talk to him? <laughs> Tell us a dirty little secret about Hollywood. I know you wrote an entire book and I want people to go out and buy that book because it's an amazing book if you have not read that book. And I'll tell you the name of it when we wrap out. But tell us a dirty little secret about Hollywood. Nobody will buy anything they don't really want to buy. Um, success comes in direct inverse proportion to desperation. <laughs> That's good. Success comes in direct inverse proportion to desperation, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell you the advice I got on my first day as an agent. Mm -hmm. um, I got promoted. I sat down in my office, and I called my girlfriend at William Morris, who was six months ahead of me, and I went, hey, what do I do? <laughs> and she said, in her funny, squeaky voice, I miss her, um, she said, honey, just do good work, and it'll come back to you. And that's really what it is. You just, you just do good work and, and the thing you planned on happening will not happen, but something else great will come from back here somewhere and hit you in the back of the head. What advice would you give to new filmmakers, either venturing into the film festival for the first time or creating a short, like a sizzle reel um, or a short standalone? Like what is your advice on this process to a young filmmaker who's out there listening? I think that uh, marketing is very important uh, getting your when you get your short out there. So make sure that you do have a trailer. You have somebody design a great poster for mm -hmm. you, one sheet. Um, and then also really participate in the festivals. Go to all the other um, go to all the all the other movies and watch what people are doing. And sometimes you'll find that you'll uh, find a collaboration there that y that you would not have had if you'd stayed in you know just went to your screenings. Tell us a dirty little Hollywood secret um, that you want to share with uh, those listening in that you wish somebody had told you, you know, years ago. What is a dirty little Hollywood secret you could share with us? When I worked at the studios, I think you have to stay in your own corner. It has mm -hmm. to be really, um, I was very ambitious and I would try to do like when I went to Sundance, I would like. When everybody else was on the slopes, I would be like, no, my company is paying me. I need to see these movies. I need to do reports on all of these. And by the time everyone was back on from Sundance, everyone would have a report on their desk from the entire thing with pictures and resumes. And one time I, I started commenting uh, on directing and how I thought this person was a good director or da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. You just got to stay in your own corner. 
But when I left the studio system, I didn't stay in my own corner. I stayed in, well, the corner was mine. So I could, I could make whatever I wanted, how I wanted it. And that's why I love being independent. Um, is that no one can tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. What are the do's and don'ts that you can tell filmmakers that are, oh my God, consistent things, don't do this. And consistent things, do this. Like what's your lay of the land? What are you looking for from filmmakers? There are situations where if you think your movie needs to be longer and there's a reason for this and this, that's fine. But that said, doesn't need to be long that long. Is it is it benefiting the story or is it not? Or is it too much exposition, too much backstory, trying to tell a bigger story that you need to focus the film and focus the story? It is a short, not a feature. So it does kind of go both ways, of, of, as I'm saying this and also saying that. But <laughs> it, it does go both ways. But, um, you know, it's while filmmakers need to focus on their story, you also do have to consider does certain scenes or material in the story need to be need to be added in or does it need to be told? Because... You know, we are dealing with shorts. Hire a um, sales, sales rep. rep. Uh-huh. Yeah, what did you do? So I'm trying to think of what festival it was. And this just shows you that you never know and mm-hmm. why it is important. You know, even even when you get a rejection or even when you get a, a wait list or deferment or whatever it is, take those slight wins home. Take, take them and, and print them out and frame them because I have to, I'll think on which festival it was, but we met our sales rep from a festival. He was a judge of a festival we didn't get into for Take Me to Tarzana. And he reached out to us. It was Glenn Reynolds at Circus Films, Circus Road Pictures. And we went from there. You can keep your budget in that ultra low budget, which is a ULB contract, SAG contract that has a 300,000 cap. So if you can keep it underneath that, like 250, 275, the likelihood of you making money when you sell to distribution is higher. And if you can bring in money, then your investors are super, super, super happy because they will come back again and do it again with you, right? If you don't pay them back, then you're unliked and they will never come back to you again. (laughs) Yeah, it's like anything else. It's building it's building trust, right? And that I think is the goal is what's what's amazing and I and has made me a smarter filmmaker and a smarter actress and a smarter producer is yeah, having these people that rely on me and trust me. And yeah, it's like if I can do this film for under 300 make their money back, then why wouldn't they want to give me then 750 for the next tier? What's the takeaway? What's the advice? Uh, What are the do's and don'ts of pitching when a filmmaker gets to present in front of a development executive? What I like, it is about what I like. If you're an executive, you you have your taste. And I always tell this to interns and and people starting out, you will carry your taste everywhere. It is part of your profile and, and whatnot. But if you're certainly if you're in this side of it, meaning not necessarily a writer, director or or director, you have to think like the world. Think, why does the studio want to make that movie? What does the studio need? Why, what do they need on their slate in the next year or two? What does, what's happening in the world right now? What might people want to see that they, they aren't seeing right now? And, and part of that is, you know, prognosticating. And of course, a lot of going right now in COVID times and, and the world we're in going, oh, People want upbeat movies. If we're migrating into AI and now, you know, live action is doing virtual productions, right? So so in theory, you're creating these extraordinary worlds without actually 
set designing, you know, these costly uh, sets. Um, do you think that there is going to be, you know, even more of a, a push into technology for animation, bringing that into virtual production? Do you see that there's a tie-in? Where do you where do you project the technology of of animation going? Yes, I, you know, it's definitely going to be uh, more, you know. You know, you know, they want more immersive stuff, you know, whether it's virtual reality, augmented reality. So the technology is definitely going to push animation in that direction. So it's going to be a combina combination of, you know, AI generation, but also the technology of, of the execution of it, you know, uh, Unreal Engine um, um, and Unity and all these, uh, these, these programs are going to be heavily integrated in those kinds of productions. And there's going to be, you know, I, I, you know, it was weird because, you know, the whole metaverse was supposed to push this and it seems to have disappeared. <laughs> it, you know, I wasn't really talking about it, but, you know, vir virtual and immersive content is definitely going to keep moving forward and technology and animation it will be part of that. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're going to want, you know, especially when AI can replace actors and, you know, and, and all sorts of things. Well, we hope not. I mean, that's what we're, that, we hope not. I mean, that's what the strike's about is, you know, that we don't want the actors replaced and we don't want the writers replaced. <laughs> no, I, 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 listen, I'm, I'm, I'm all pro writers and pro actors. I actually personally do not use AI. I am very, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a dinosaur. I'm more anti-tech in general, but um, independent productions who are not WGA or uh, SAG signatures don't have to worry about that so they are free to use ai for whatever they want and there are a lot more independent and foreign producers than there are hollywood signature producers so uh with with you know now that we've understood with streaming and youtube and all that you can get your content out there without without selling it to one of the big guys so if enough producers are creating engaging content they're not relying on sag or wga with this new technology, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to level the playing field of like, okay, who, who's making what for who? So, you know, animation definitely is going to be part of that because animation is one of the few global, uh, you know, um, audience pleasers. I mean, a, animation translates to most international markets. Uh, and, and um, you know, especially because you can, you know, do voiceover for any language. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the designs are more anthropomorphic or abstract Then you know, you're not defining race and always gender. So animation, you know, can have a bigger reach and, and producers are aware of that. I mean, animation uh, for features have been the biggest money makers, in, you know, consistently over the last decade or so. Virtual production. For those that are listening that may not have a real touchstone on what that is, can you explain to our listeners really what virtual production is on the grand studio scale and then on the indie scale? Right. Um, well, virtual production has been around for a while. Uh, Epic Games has an uh, Unreal Engine. And then what we sort of started to figure out is that that engine could be utilized as a visual effects tool. Talk to us about where you see this going. Well, the beauty is, is that it de democratizes this work for everyone. That's really where it comes down to. 
now as computers get faster and cheaper, it, it will progress, you know, more so. But basically, we were all sitting in our homes during COVID in different locations around the country. And you could work like that. It, we didn't have to be together until you get to the wall or do something like that. But I think it allows, you know, the kind of the kid in the Indiana cornfield and the and the guy in, or woman in Timbuktu and uh, somebody else in Kuala Lumpur to pull together and do things they could have never done before. First of all, you had to realize what kind of parts you would be cast in in order for you to write a part for yourself? Or did you say, these are the kind of parts I should be cast in and I wanna write something that will show what I can do you know, in that particular part? Great question, so many layers. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like for me, it was more the latter where it was like, uh, these are the roles that I want to do and um, I'm probably not gonna get cast in them for for whatever reason i don't know if that was true maybe it was true for the time but i wasn't going out for those types of roles and did you have to like break your mind in order to go okay wait a second this is how you write it this is how you perform it and the writing the performing are two different animals right i think it was a combination of both because my first scripts even dragonfly um i actually rewrote it after we had already like done voiceover production and done a lot of the animation in order to apply for grants because I went back and read it with what I know now and I was like mm, if if the first person seeing this is like a script reader um they're gonna they're gonna see this formatting and be like uh, there was a lot of um there was a lot of heavy text and it is animation but there was a lot of like long paragraph there was like a first page was like description and I'm like I think I can cut that back. And that was something I had learned as a reader and taking classes. Can you talk about how you uh, came up with that idea? You know, what that first experience was for you as you navigated through those um, festival circuit waters? We made that film and uh, we're really happy with it. We didn't really know what to do with it, but uh, eventually we sent it out to some festivals and it got the attention of Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas, uh, and uh, one of the curators there, Peter Kaplowski, who would eventually go on to be our executive producer and played a huge role in The Artifice Girl. Um, he was the one who kind of championed it. And uh, that was our first real kind of introduction to the independent film world. What is a piece of advice that you can give a young filmmaker that is maybe venturing into doing their first feature or doing their first short? What can you share in your wisdom learned so far? It's difficult to give advice because I feel like what worked for me may not work for other people. And also I tried uh, doing things the way that other people had done them and it didn't work for me, you know? So um, I, I think uh, if, if I was to give advice, I know this sounds like a, I'm, I'm a broken record, but I do think it's important to, uh, to approach obstacles and problems as opportunities uh, approach those challenges approach those limitations as uh you know uh, uh, an opportunity for creativity and for uh, ingenuity how has it been uh being a female director with uh, and bringing in crew have you 
you know, there's there's different uh, schools out there, so to speak. Uh, you have those that are um, struggling with it, those that are not struggling with it. You know, where do you place yourself? How has that experience been? Yeah, so I will say um, I worked with uh, the director of Trauma Bonded uh, was, uh, her name is Tori Lane Ross. Um, and so she was my, my collaborator for um, pu putting together our crew. Um, and so we worked together on um, interviewing people, trying to get a sense of um, personality fit in like putting together that set. And I think we took, I, I can't even really say that it was a strategic approach, but it was really a gut feel um, in terms of like when we talked to different people, just how we felt with them, how comfortable we felt with them. Um, and then when we put everybody together on set, I've had almost every person who was on that set has specifically pulled me aside to tell me that was one of the best sets I've ever been on. Um, the energy was so great. It was really um, supportive. We made incredible time. Um, we shot all of our days um, 10 hours or less. I think there was a day we wrapped early, which just feels unheard of. Um, but everybody was just really professional, really respectful. Um, and again, it was it was kind of like I was trying to build it towards that like vibe that I got from the film school the first time. Like I just want to be in a room together with people who are really passionate about what they do and see and, and really value and respect each other as professionals at what they do. Um, and so I haven't had any, you know, from the directing side, Tori would have to speak to her experience doing that. Um, but as the producer, I felt really empowered um, to do my job and to let other people do their jobs and um, to really just, yeah, just everybody respecting each other enough to, um, like, respect enough to take, I don't want to call them orders, but to take orders, you know, to take instruction, but also respect each other enough to say, hey, I know what you're asking for. I will do it if you want me to. Let me explain my concern with that um, and just and just make it about the work. Um, that's really the main thing is every time the focus has been on the work, I've had a great experience. So that transition going from Hallmark to branded pictures was also kind of an interesting transition for you. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, you know, I, I've always been I've always had that sort of little like hustler mo like mode. I will always find work, land on my feet. Um, and I'm trying to think about how, oh, it was, so my mentor and his writing partner, they're kind of both of my mentors. Um, the other one had recommended me to Todd Harris over there. They were looking for someone to do a rewrite on a property that they were working on. And so I went and met them and I pitched my take on, on what I would do differently from the current script. And, um, and I think this is maybe where the consulting background came in, um, you know, magically here i um it we i mean you know this it's so much easier to fix other people's scripts like why is that the case <laughs> yeah so you know it's kind of a lot easier to come in and pitch that um and then you know meeting todd was he's pretty awesome and um got to work there we that got shelved during uh, the pandemic which you know totally understand um we still needed to do another pretty big rewrite and um yeah, just, you know, was not the right time to go raise a round of funding and 
<laughs> keep all your development projects uh, on this on the docket. So I understood, you know, I reach out to them every once in a while and say hello. And um, but it was, again, another great experience because you're working with someone who's who's operating at such a high level. So now you're on this other interesting journey. You are working for Nico Productions. You are working as a story editor on their IP 101 Reasons Why. So tell people what a story editor do, do does, <laughs> do, does, whatever. This came about, uh, I had actually worked with Lorit beforehand on a project and her husband, Liron, who's an animator uh, at DreamWorks. Um, they're both phenomenally talented. Um, she's called me up one day and said, I have a friend who is a totally innovative, mad genius outside the box. He's got a great idea. Can you, you know, can you take a look at it and let us know what you think? And uh, I said, of course, you know, so I sent it over and I loved it. And I called her back and I said, I want, I want in, I want to be on board. I, this, I, this really speaks to my heart. Um, so at the time it was kind of a short pitch and I, you know, just did standard consulting with it and then said, I think we should blow it out into an entire world. I think, you know, at the time we were following Danny, the protagonist, um, and all of his reasons, 101 reasons why he can never seem to have his homework. Um, but it's never his fault, of course. Um, and I was like, there's 101 reasons why kids can't do a lot of things, you know, can't take a shower, why they're the stinky kid in gym class or can never find their shoes or eat their vegetables or why they're always late. Like, and the excuses are always hilarious and funny and kind of heartfelt because they're trying to you know, either cover up something that they're struggling with or the story turns into them being a crazy hero. And, you know, even when I talk to my nieces, I have six nieces, one nephew, one kid. <laughs> um, when I talk to um, all the little ones, like their reasons for why they can't do something somehow always shine a light on how great they are. And I'm like, this is wonderful to to hear these stories and um so we went really hard in that direction so i helped develop um i have helped develop not only the characters the supporting cast um and weigh in on everything from um graphic design which is not really kind of a story editor's um thing i, I appreciate that they asked my opinion but i always you know give a short feedback and say i yield to those experts um but mostly you know when i work with ophir who is the creator of 101 reasons why um you know, we're, we're doing a lot of ideation, a lot of brainstorming together and then cracking new storylines. Sometimes he'll pitch an episode idea and I will come back and say, um, here's how we make that work best. And here's the problem that we should put with it and some hurdles, you know, so just um, a really good sounding board. Um, and I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of, you know, writing of developing of the uh, general pitch and um, we'll probably write a couple episodes as well. 